0: Okay, first some business. This is not a pledge drive. It's a ratings and review drive. If you enjoy our show, please take two minutes to rate us and even better post a review, either on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get counterpoints. All right, on to the show. When you think of prodigies in American team sports, a few names spring to mind. LeBron James and Bryce Harper grace the covers of Sports Illustrated at just 16. Meanwhile, college stars like Trevor Lawrence and Zion Williamson could be found on recruiting boards for years before they played their way into the national consciousness. But while high school is about the earliest you'll see the athlete hype machine get revved up in the US, it's a little bit different across the pond. Take, for instance, this quote from a youth coach at A.S. Bondi, a small soccer club in the Paris suburbs. You could tell he was different. In Paris, there are many talents but I'd never seen a talent like him. That was about a young forward named Kylian Mbappe, and when I say young, I mean he was all of six years old. Sure, he might have a few precocious dribble tricks up his
1: sleeve, but how do you really know what path a talented six-year-old will follow? When I was six, I was the best shooter on my friend's eight-foot basketball hoop, but I'm not currently reigning threes for the Miami Heat. And yet the coaches at A.S. Bondi were confident what they were seeing was no fluke. Just over a decade later, Mbappe broke A.S. Monaco records as their youngest professional ever. And today, the kid-turned-bigger-kid is lighting up the world for his club PSG and the French national team. As every club on earth searches for their own Mbappe, the World Cup-winning superstar serves as a prime example of the payoff for pursuing a prodigy's potential. I'm Ben Shields.
0: I'm Paul Michaelman, and this is CounterPoints, a sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. In this episode, it's all about the kids. We dive into the world of elite soccer academies and discover at just how young an age the top teams can identify professional-level talent. CounterPoints is brought to you by Ticketmaster, the world's leading ticketing software and services company. Ticketmaster is trusted by thousands of artists, teams, and venues across 29 countries, connecting more than 1 billion fans and powering half a billion tickets each year. That's 15 tickets per second to live events around the globe. So whether you're grabbing seats to a must-win game, catching the hottest show in town, or giving someone you love an experience they'll remember forever, head over to Ticketmaster for 100% safe, verified tickets to your next unforgettable event. Because live only happens once. Even as soccer has become a multi-billion dollar business, with superstar transfer fees exceeding nine figures, the best clubs can still gain a competitive advantage through their youth academies.
1: While the academy system is gaining traction here in the U.S., in Europe, it's served as the backbone of successful clubs for decades. Ajax, FC Barcelona, and Manchester United are just a few examples of teams that have consistently developed diamonds in the rough into championship contributors.
0: But to develop those players, first you have to find them, and find them before anyone else does. At Chelsea FC, home to an academy that has recently produced burgeoning talents like Callum Hudson-Odoi and Ruben Loftus-Cheek, some of that responsibility falls on the head of research and innovation, Ben Smith. Here, our Ben speaks to Chelsea's Ben about how football academies can develop talented six-year-olds into professional soccer players, and what kind of role data and analytics Play in creating the next generation of stars. You
1: know, I want to start with a little bit of context for our listeners. And can you kind of give us a sense of what the academy does at Chelsea Football Club?
2: So, you know, our, our job is to create players for our first team. Um, and so that's about understanding what. Um, talented footballers look like. So we're going out and we're able to recruit players of exceptional potential as well as uh, exceptional ability uh, and then putting in a a really strong development process to maximize their talent so that um, they're ultimately able to cope with the demands of of our first team and and positively contribute towards the needs of um, of our squad.
1: I want to talk a bit about the talent identification piece, because this is really interesting to me. At what age are you able to identify high potential talent?
2: We have uh, development centers. Um, we have 12 development centers uh, that are sort of within, I think it's an hour and a half of, uh, of the training base. And in each of those uh, development centers, there's uh, approximately 20 boys. Um, and so those boys are typically across under seven and under eight. And they have been recruited in our local area and seen as boys that are high potential players for their age. Um, and we, we train and um, help develop them. Uh, and those boys, there are then 20 selected to join our under nines as um, as registered Chelsea footballers.
1: When you identify these players, what is your success rate in converting them into professional footballers
2: um so when we look at the the data we kind of make a break point of uh, of approximately 12 years ago which is uh some of it is around quality of data but most of it is really around um when the academy took a strategic direction and the head of youth development neil bath came in and started shaping and influencing recruitment and and every aspect of the academy so Prior to that stage, it's kind of a different era. So most of our data is looking at the era that we're currently in. And of that time frame, we've got 36% of boys that have ever registered for us um, as an under nine have gone on to be professionals.
1: So let's unpack that a little bit. What is the mix between scouting the right player and then the development process? Is, ha, ha, sure. ha, can you talk us through kind of the, the ingredients here to the success rate that you've been able to achieve there?
2: Sure, I, I can, you know, I'll happily go through all of that, but it is important to to say from an evidence point of view, we can't differentiate between the quality of our recruitment and the quality of our development processes mm. because, you know, we're confident we bring in high potential individuals and we're confident we've got an exceptional development program, but you can never tell, which has had the influence. You know, we could, we don't know if we're bringing in average players and we're training them to be incredible, um, although we don't feel that's the case, or if we're bringing in unbelievable players that would make it irrelevant of our development process. Um, so, you know, we, we can look at the quality of both of those processes. We just can't measure the difference between those, unfortunately.
1: Do you think you'll be able to get to that point?
2: No, I don't think so, because you you can't, quantify the potential of a player at nine you can you can look to say do they have key traits which we know are vital and you know what should they look like in a eight-year-old right they, they have ingredients that will give them the potential to be really really good um, however then you've got 12 years of development in which anything can happen um, some of it is under our control. A lot of it is out of our control. And, you know, the, that's the, the randomness of the development pathway.
1: So that's interesting. When you talk about the identification, for instance, of an eight-year-old, how much of that process is about the experience that your talent scouts have versus perhaps the data that you have on that boy in order to understand whether or not it's it's a high potential talent?
2: I think it's fair to say that um, it mostly comes under the qualitative assessment, but it's a structured qualitative assessment. You know, We're not just kind of going, tell us if he's good or not. We, we're kind of giving very defined um, areas of how we want our coaches to use their um, expert assessments and report back to us. There's a huge amount of education that goes on with our scouts and recruitment staff, so that there is very clear alignment between how we view a player. What do they need to do? What should it look like at that age? So that if different people see the see a player, there should be a, a high level of um, clarity and resonance between how they're reporting back on that player. We're not just kind of randomly going, "Ah, oh, he's good here" or "He's good there." You know, and so that quality assurance um, uh, across. Uh, our scouting process is something that the recruitment department have done fantastic work on and really helps our process.
1: So even with a qualitative assessment process, process you have in place criteria, for lack of a better term, to help systematize that process across the entire organization. So that, that's, that's really helpful. Okay, so the, the kid gets in the door you identify the talent. Now, let's talk about the development process. So once that eight-year-old is now part of the academy, what are some of the data-based approaches that you take to develop that player's football skills as a kid?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say the um, the industry is, is definitely developing in this area, but I wouldn't say it's hugely sophisticated yet. The, the ability to create data evidence-led approach that still works operationally on the ground for coaches and for staff. Um, I haven't seen that in a large number of environments on a on a development level. I, I have seen it, obviously, in a huge amount of first-team environments, um, but it's hard to create um, a really sound narrative that works for 10, 11, 12 years about um, how a player progresses um, from, a, from a data point of view because of all the different things that happen. And so I think the, where, where we're at now is, is trying to create um, a model, again, that, that frames a lot of subjective expert assessment, but then you're able to, to track a player over four, five, six years in how they've developed in these core competencies that we consider are necessary in football and then evaluate how effective we've been at developing those areas. So can you
1: share an example? perhaps, of a player who maybe is on the current roster and what that not only talent identification story was with that player, but also how you've developed him to be a professional contributor on the team currently?
2: So the, the, there's a few boys on in the, in the first team squad at the moment. Um, Ruben Loftus-Cheek is, is one of our academy boys that we're, we're really proud of. He's uh, let's see now Ruben's I think 20 or 21, and he re- he joined the academy as a, a as an eight year old, and so he's someone that you know would have gone through a really high quality coaching process. He had a f- fantastic talent. Um, however, you know helping him maximize that talent and learn some of the holistic skills that go alongside technical expertise so that he he can go on to be successful in our first team environment is kind of a key process that we do because our first team environment is it's not a normal environment and if you just take a high talent individual but with a, a regular psychology you know it's not necessarily going to translate into success in our first team um, you, you've got to have a, a very particular sort of set performance skills in terms of your mental approach and, and how you manage yourself to be able to even get through the door never mind be successful and thrive and, and, and take the opportunity
1: so that's an interesting point about the mental side of a first team player one of our first episodes of this show was about measuring basketball IQ are there data-based approaches that you take within the academy to measure and perhaps improve the IQ of a footballer?
2: I don't think we would we would look to um, improve the IQ of a footballer. Um, what we we work really hard on is there's a, a core set of psychological skills, uh, the PGCS psychological skills for developing excellence um, that make up a skill set about on-pitch performance. Um, but then we, we also want to develop our players holistically to to be successful off the pitch, which obviously then has an impact on their, their on-pitch abilities. And so there's a, there's a, a football education program that starts at under nine and, and goes all the way through about upskilling our players in areas that would probably be considered normal life for most kids. But – we are taking these um, these highly talented boys at, at an age, and we, to a to a lesser degree to start, we're bringing them out of normal life. We're putting them in a, in a very uh, unusual environment. It's an exceptional environment, but it's very unusual. And uh, some of the things that just naturally develop as as a regular kid growing up, you you no longer develop in our environment because it's uh, because it's so. F- focused um so we have to make sure that our football education program um you know gives our boys not just the the skills to thrive in our first team but the things that you just assume everyone develops but you know inadvertently they've missed out on by being in such a a niche specialist environment
1: so how many current players on the chelsea first team are products of the academy
2: so that it's a, without meaning to be elusive, it's a, it's a difficult question to, to define because you have your 1 to 11. You know, how many people start consistently in our 1 to 11? Mm, it depends on who the manager is. Uh, last year, um, Andreas Christensen was starting consistently. Uh, this year, we've had a change in formation, and so he's now um, more often on the bench. Uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek was out on loan He's now back and playing Callum Hudson odoi is is in in certain games and, and doing really well but isn't a consistent starter in the Premier League games and, and then we have boys who are um, more like squad players like Ethan Ampadou who um, doing tremendously well but it, it's you know it's not a black and white question because the context changes so much
1: right I think that that's fair you know my question, I'd like to ask you a question about specialization. Here in the U.S., there are often narratives of players that actually play a bunch of sports and then only start to specialize maybe in high school. And Uh then the highest talented ones make it to the pros. And you're telling a story here, a successful one, but of the benefits of specialization. I mean, is it possible for a professional footballer to not specialize and focus only on soccer for his entire life and still make the pros or is there something about soccer where you really have to start young and focus on it 100% in order to be successful
2: specializations are really interesting concepts certainly around the UK model i mean uh, i think the the answer to that question differs on where you're growing up um, because perhaps you can still be successful in that model in north america um but in in the uk and to my knowledge europe that that's harder because the the children who have specialized earlier have got such an advantage and sometimes technically you you cannot develop that level of expertise unless you've started early Um, however you know we're not unaware of the challenges of early specialization in terms of physical competencies um, across loads of foundational skills that movement skills that you don't develop unless you're exposed to lots of different types of movements that early specialization would typically limit. Um, the the psychological flexibility and adaptability to lots of different um, approaches is harder with early specialization. So our, our approach um, to specialization is not to say we shouldn't specialize because early that is because if you don't specialize early our competitors will just sign up the talent Mm -hmm. you know if we say all right we won't recruit until we're 15 or 16 there's no one left to recruit right um and and if whoever we do recruit there's almost no chance that they'll be able to um, progress at the rate that we need so the the approach is to accept that to be competitive um we we need to recruit at these early ages and to understand the challenges of early specialization and then to proactively address those challenges within our development pathway. Um, So we would have very specific multi-sport activities that all our boys are exposed to Um, and they would do yoga, gymnastics, badminton. We understand there are some core sports and skills that expose you to physical movements that are not the same as football, but complement the football demands really well, developing really good robustness and um, core strength and uh, you know, footwork, um, movement patterns that that really help you translate into a talent environment, but also build up a wider competencies of, of those core skills.
1: That's a, that's a fascinating approach, actually, Ben, that even though the boys are within the academy and focused, of course, on professional football, that you are also exposing them to other sports as a way to help round out their development. All right, a couple more questions for you. The first is regarding the data that you would like to have. And that's what's so fascinating about the sports industry. We're getting new sources of data and information about athletes in the future. So if you think about the Talent identification process or the development process, are there types of data that you wish you had that you don't have today that can help the academy do their jobs better and help benefit these boys?
2: When I think of um, data that will be really useful, I, I got to think of okay, what are our core challenges? You know, I'm I'm not someone that wants to you know be data indulgent for the sake of it. I want to use data as a tool to, to address our, our key challenges and problems and, and solve some things and make everyone's life easier. So if I think, OK, well, how can we use data to um, find talent more effectively? And I think that would probably come down to how do we uh, create a new level, um, a new first level of, uh, of recruitment that covers so many more players, um, we are we're limited at the moment by the physical number of scouts and how many matches they can watch. And you know, it's, it's a it's a human limitation. If we could access data that covered all players at grassroots, we, we could do some really cool stuff that would certainly wouldn't replace scouts. You know, I, I, I can't imagine a situation where computers do any of that. However, we could start to much more sensibly strategically align where those scouts go to because we consider them high talent areas or high talent potential areas because we've already got this low level information that can help identify so our scouts can then be they can be going to games of higher quality or high potential quality to to do their job that they do really really well but they're just going to less games that are there wasn't anyone there does that make sense
1: it makes it makes perfect sense and was actually something I was thinking about because you've got to scout not just your local area. I mean, you're scouting regions all around the world, and it is seemingly a very difficult task to not miss a player, right? <laughs> I mean, you want to be able to be everywhere, but you can't based on some of the resources that you have. So so that makes perfect sense to me.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's, there's always a... A situation every time that a player progresses in a different club that is technically on our patch you know because it's a highly competitive environment here we'll be we crossover with lots and lots of clubs um and so you know th- there'll always be a thorough uh, examination of h- how did that one get away mm-hmm. you know why did that person not come up on our uh, on our scouting process often we were able to go well no they did you know, we, we, we've seen them here, here, and here, but because of, I suppose, the, the nature of performance and not being consistent, those times that we saw them were just unlucky or, you know, they came into trial, but they just, they didn't do very well in our environment. And, you know, they have developed really well in another environment. Um, but where we go, uh, wow, we, we, we didn't ever hear about them. Either those guys uh, are really good at keeping those situations uh, away from normal conversations, mm-hmm. I doubt that. I think I just don't think there are lots of players that we miss because we have a really, really strong scouting network who, um, you know, work really, really hard to make sure players don't get missed.
1: All right, Ben. My last question is coming back to where we started, and you shared some pretty compelling data about thirty-six percent of boys under nine within the academy making it to uh-huh. first team. What other success metrics? are you able to share about the work that the Academy does in terms of not only identifying talent, but also developing them fully?
2: Well, I I think um, when we look at what we're trying to do, we're trying to develop boys who are successful on and off the pitch. Um, And so we we have metrics about boys that go on to become professional footballers. Uh, Within that we can differentiate between our first team, premier league, football league, um, or just kind of professionals in in the broader game and that that's absolutely a core aspect of what we do and you know we from a success point of view um, over the last 12 years that that's it's on a really positive trend um, as we've developed our professional processes and improved our quality we've been able to be increasingly more successful at the conversion rates there um, I think we have it's where we say there's 36% have become professionals. It's 21% are playing at a football league level or above um, 11% play at a premier league club. And that's those numbers are, are very, very different to the numbers advertised in mainstream media. Um, part of that is the fact we have an exceptionally talented um, group of players, but we also feel like we do a really good job of, of helping development. The, the bit, that is harder to um, to evidence is, is when we talk about the off pitch success. We're, we're we're helping boys become more than just professional footballers. We haven't managed to quantify that value yet, but we'd you know we'd be really interested in that so that we can um, measure the success of boys outside of their um, outside of their professional contribution in football.
0: This has been CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher,
1: Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are streamed. And if you have an idea for a topic we should cover or a guest we should invite, please drop us a line at counterpoints at
0: MIT.edu. CounterPoints is produced by Mary Dew. Our theme music was composed by Matt Reed. Our coordinating producer is Mackenzie Wise. Our crack researcher is Jake Minashi, And our maven of marketing is Desiree Barry.